Welcome to the Future Fair Food Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie. And I'm Sinead. Join us in conversations with the change makers shaping a new fairer food system. Welcome back to our Fair Food Podcast. Over the next two episodes, we are exploring the term of agroecology. It describes a holistic farming approach of farming in harmony with nature where food production makes the best use of nature's goods and services without damaging these resources. Within this approach, working with what's locally available and possible becomes increasingly important. But the term agroecology encompasses more than a farming approach. It is also a wide global social movement where people are working towards bringing agroecology into the mainstream and making this our new norm to grow food on this planet. On a European level, different pilot projects have been started to explore how farming with nature can have benefits not only for biodiversity, but also for farmers. In this episode, we're going to hear more about European innovation partnerships and results-based payments. Enjoy the episode. I'm Dolores Brown. I'm an ecologist and an environmental science lecturer in IT Sligo, and a particular interest in farming systems, and over the past three years from 2015 to 2018 I was lucky enough to be involved in a results-based agri-environment pilot scheme and uh, I'd love to tell you more about that because it really forms the basis of advances in Irish agriculture that I hope will help sustain farming communities and those are through the European innovation partnerships that we have now scattered throughout the countryside. Those are very important projects which will you know, they really showcase how we can move to a different way of paying farmers for biodiversity and farming produce that's on their land. So I was involved in a results-based agri-environment payment scheme or pilot system um, and that's a bit of an, a mouthful mm-hmm. so we used to shorten it to ORVAPS. It's an acronym recognised throughout <laughs> Europe uh, and really what it is, it's a payment for ecosystem services and uh, when we set off with the ORBAPS idea and uh, that was actually a German MEP in the European Parliament uh, suggested maybe set money could be or some money could be put aside to really develop this idea, which had been small scale in France and in Germany and in other parts around Europe. The idea that you could pay for the quality of some biodiversity product. Could that be applied more wide scale outside of, say, your special areas conservation or your special mm-hmm. protection areas? Those are areas where we know there's a lot of biodiversity and we know the targets that we're looking for. but most of the land in Europe isn't under that protection could we look more widely at farming systems and see can we do something there that can identify what a target a biodiversity target associated with agriculture could be and can can we come up with some sort of quality based assessment system Mm -hmm. Uh, and could we do it simply but have it underpinned by very good science and that's very important this has to be it has to make sense for the target that you're choosing and it has to make sense for the farmer and for the farming system. Getting all of that in place means a bit of work. It means having a, a lead-in time, a pilot time to assess what you're looking at. So that was our job. 
Yom Kentelichum, also down the Shannon Callows and in Navarra in Spain. So those are three very different farming systems. Mm. So first of all, just to go to the Shannon Callows system. So what we wanted to do there was look at the, the River Shannon and where it floods. Uh, along there is the Callows, the, the meadow system, beautiful species-rich meadows. They're under special area conservation protection and also associated with that is special protection areas for corncrake, uh, red shank, curlew, etc. These breeding waders that are dependent on low levels of farming intensity. But surrounding that Shannon Callows area, you've actually got what we would call quite intensive agriculture. So mm. these are remnant high nature value farming systems where, where you can intensify, it has been intensified where you haven't intensified there's still a lot of biodiversity attached and it's very important biodiversity so as part of the farming system you know individual farmers will have more intensive land green land and they'll also have some of the callows land both of those pieces of land are very important to them as part of their farming systems generally speaking if you walked onto a high nature value farming system what you'd have is nice amount of density of hedgerows you'd have semi-natural vegetation, so species rich grasslands, woodlands, scrub, ponds, rivers, etc. And you've also got associated with that, maybe not the high productivity levels that you would get if you went to a more intensive system. So for years, you know, people used to bemoan their bad luck that they were that they had these type yeah. systems. Uh, so I remember, you know, in the past my father lamenting the fact that there were rushes on the land instead mm. of lovely green grass fields that you maybe might see in some other parts east or southeast of Ireland. But as I think, it, as our ideas have progressed from maybe a more production model to now a production model with farming, uh, we can start to turn the story around and start to tell farmers about the value of the high nature value farming systems that they, in the past, struggled with but now potentially embrace and hopefully it will be better in Ireland and across Europe and across the world coming up with policies and payment systems that actually properly recognise the value of these value of these systems. They do produce food. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're not systems that are, you know, not capable of sustaining agricultural production, but they're just not capable of sustaining agricultural production to the extent that we have in, in some more intensive areas. Mm-hmm. But what they can do is they can produce livestock, grains, etc., and also high levels of biodiversity. So when you think about hedgerows dividing, you know, if you drive along the countryside here in, in Leitrim Sagal, there's lots of hedgerows, there's lovely stone walls. They're in various, you know, condition, but most of them are flowering and fruiting. There's lots of birds in there at the base, there's lots of small mammals, and you can see the the badgers have headed in and up into other areas to go looking for earthworms. Um, you can see the, butterfli- the butterflies flying alongside the edges of them. You know, there, there's just so much wildlife associated with these high nature value farming systems. And we are coming to a stage now where we have the ability to maybe capture some of that value into a system that could be incorporated into agri-environment schemes. Mm-hmm. So our idea there was that we would look at, uh, could we come up with a scoring system for 
these easy switch medals, fluid medals, and could we come up with a scoring system for land that could support the breeding raiders. Moving then up to County Leitrim, we decided we'd work outside of designated land because actually a lot of County Leitrim isn't designated for nature conservation, so it doesn't have Natura designations on it. But it's still very rich in biodiversity. And uh, we chose, what, what we had to do was actually we had to sit down and think in County Leitrim if we were to look at it from paying a farmer for producing something on their land for biodiversity, what targets could we think of that we could apply this to? So the most obvious one was species-rich grasslands. Mm -hmm. Now when I say species-rich grasslands, I'm not just talking about the plants that are in there, but ones that are full of plants are full of butterflies, beetles, pollinators, mm -hmm. the, the big word at the that moment. That actually support, that actually support living systems. Soil, yeah. fauna that's in mm -hmm. good condition. Um, they're usually surrounded by hedgerows, mm -hmm. which will, again, you know, hedgerow birds, very important. And there's different types of grassland. So we have hay meadow, we have acid grassland, we have wet grassland, and calcareous grassland. We do actually have all of those in County Legion, varying obviously proportions. We've got more wet grassland that was not hard to find <laughs> <laughs> in County Legion. But, um, you know, we did go to target townlands where we could get both a range of those different types of grassland and also a range of different quality. So what we needed to do was test from something that was maybe more intensified to something that was really extensively grazed or managed and had a lot of the species that we might be looking for. So we wanted to develop a scoring system that could differentiate between those different types of grasslands. And then looking at County Leitrim as well, we've got um, very good populations of Ireland's only protected butterfly, the Marshall Tilly butterfly. What it needs, it needs a specific type of species rich grassland or heathland. They are rare because that type of grassland is declining. Mm -hmm. It's either been abandoned because it is very difficult to farm grassland of that type. It's the type where you, you really will have very low stocking density, mm -hmm. 0.2, 0.3, even less stocking density is the one where a gorse is encroaching, or Windsor firs, whichever, there's lots of different terms for a gorse. I, so think, I, I just think that's really important to just highlight there that often for farmers who are um, getting payments under the common agricultural policy, mm. if gorse is encroaching or if rushes take over, a lot of that land under um, the basic farm payment is taken out of your system. So you're actually penalized for having that. <laughs> for a lot of farmers, it's difficult to farm, but also it's difficult under current policy to even farm it, right? It is difficult under current policy because um, policies, I suppose, really were put in place for productivity. Mm. Uh, and I'm hoping that with future cap reform, maybe we're not quite there with this cap reform, it's hard to tell at the moment, that the ability for subsidiarity for member states to maybe have a little bit more control over this will help us identify targets that maybe can do with a different approach to land eligibility. Um, and back to the marsh artillery again, you know, the, the marsh artillery needs the grassland 
Mm-hmm. So yes, we do need to keep the gorse under control. But also the gorse can shelter it. And where I found the Marsh Artillery webs in the past when I've been doing the service is they're usually backed up to where the gorse is eating the grassland. Mm-hmm. So getting that balance right is, is actually quite tricky. And when farmers come to farm that sort of land, there's, there's kind of an instinctive knowledge for how much stock you can have out there without it being over poached. Uh, when you can have them on, ideally there'd be some form of grazing, light grazing kind of throughout the year in those mm. types of systems because they usually have a lot of um, more grass which can take over quite readily if it's not grazed properly. Those are so hard to farm and the nuances of farming that type of system are so great that actually to me they're standout types of farming systems that showcase number one is the indigenous skills that farmers have but also the fact that it's not taken into account when we look at how that type of farmland is valued. And how would be the farmer's perception of the value of, of this land, of this type of land? Well, uh, say the farmers that we had involved in the scheme, two of them had uh, this type of farming system or t- uh, this type of butterfly and the grassland that associated with it on their land. Neither of them knew the name of the butterfly before I went and talked to them about this scheme and would they be interested in taking part. And uh, actually one of the farmers, you know, when he got into the scheme, you know, they, they, they were quizzical about why people would pay for a butterfly, why anybody would be interested in a butterfly. And they'd never actually taken part in an ag environment scheme before because they felt their land was never good enough mm. to take part in an ag environment scheme. Where in reality, their land was perfect perfect for an agri environment mm-hmm. scheme. You just need to develop an agri environment scheme that can that take account towards it, yeah. of their type of mm-hmm. farming system mm-hmm. and that doesn't work against it. Yes. So, it isn't always about taking out the gorse, but maybe it's about uh, controlling the gorse correctly and mm-hmm. for the right reasons and in the right places and at the right time within that type of farming land. But, you know, the one of the farmers, he. Um, he was so interested, he went out with his phone and he took some pictures of butterflies. Cause, you know, we found it hard to go out at the right time just to see the, the butterflies flying as land. So he was taking pictures of every butterfly he'd seen and emailing them, or uh, you know, texting them on to me, asking me, was this the Marsh Tilly butterfly? Was this the Marsh Tilly <laughs> butterfly? So it was actually such a joy to go up with them one day and show them the butterfly. Mm. And uh, they are a beautiful, attractive butterfly, thankfully. <laughs> Not some, uh, you know, unattractive butterfly but you know it does grey guys it's not, it's not a grey moth or anything like this moths are wonderful too but um, you know they could actually now associate this butterfly with a market price that they were getting through this pilot scheme mm-hmm. and that's came into uh, I suppose the realm of advice and how important advisory systems are for farmers because um, like any system, they understand it better than anybody else. But sometimes they need to either talk over changes they'd like to make or get a bit of technical advice mm. on how to move things in a different direction. And so ensuring skilled advisors who can progress this type of approach 
going to be very important for the going future. Going forward, yeah. yeah. going forward. Because yes. it's something that's definitely not there now, I, I think. It, it is in some sectors. But in some advisors have naturally lined themselves to that way anyway, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because that's the type of land that their clients have. Sure, yeah. And they would fully recognise that some of the policies, regulations, uh, and maybe some of the elements of agri-environment schemes that we have and had had weren't fully suited to the land that their clients have. And they, you know, they're the ones that are really engaged now in what's happening because they see the potential through the European Innovation Partnerships that are scattered throughout the country. I think it's about 30 now, something Mm. like that throughout the country. Um, There's the Hen Harrier project and the Freshwater Paramos project. They stand out as the two largest funded but also biggest scale European Innovation Partnerships. And people who haven't heard about them, go onto the National Rural Network website. They have some lovely, uh, easy to read bits of information about this type of approach. They've mapped them as well, I think. And they've mapped them, yeah. And they have, um, you know, quick sort of sound bites of what each project is trying to do. And they're all trying to achieve different things, but what they're all trying to do is innovate in terms of how farming can progress to meet social requirements, climate requirements, environment requirements, etc. that we all see coming to the fore, as they well as productivity. Like leading, exa- they are case studies, of well, practical working case studies that farmers can obviously look at and take, but I think for for citizens, for general citizens, they show, I think, the potential, because, you know, as you were saying earlier, the, the climate change agriculture debate is very... Um, either or at the moment mm. and as a farmer myself and as a, an environmentalist you find that some people see all farmers as bad and and vice versa you know farmers see all environmentalists as bad but actually we have a lot of common ground and I think the EIPs are great working examples of how we can find going forward there is a future where mm-hmm. we can be productive in agriculture still produce food to feed populations now and growing populations and yet reverse the decline we have in, mm. in, in biodiversity mm. and tackle climate change and account for yeah. a change in climate yeah. change. I mean, that old saying, farmers the custodian of the environment, they're also custodian of biodiversity uh, over a lot of Ireland, over a lot of Europe. They just haven't been encouraged. They haven't been encouraged and they haven't been recognised fully. Yeah. And um, the mechanisms for recognition weren't there. The innovations are very, they're very simple in many mm. ways. It's not, always not, it's not always technological. Always. We often hear innovation, yeah. we think technology, and it's not in a lot of ways. It's actually just reversing back. It's like what you said earlier about farmers that you know there's an instinct there sometimes that you know, they're looking at their land and they're kind of going, oh, I think maybe I'm pushing this. But the current model of farming tells them you need to push it further. Mm. Whereas this results-based payment and kind of the Burn Project, the EIPs, what you've done here, it's really kind of saying, well, actually, we can produce food and manage biodiversity mm-hmm. by taking a agroecology approach. But yeah, you know, but it is. Yeah, we have a national agroecology really, but everything is. So with the EIPs, you've got a ground-up approach from the farmers mm-hmm. and the communities realizing we need a different model. Yeah. And a lot of effort and a lot of work, volunteer effort was put into getting each one of those EIPs up and running. The ones that weren't funded equally, you know, many 
community groups have a lot of effort trying to get the stage where they could get a fully funded pilot scale uh, yeah. approach and hopefully there'll be some other mechanism for those groups because I wouldn't like to see that they have nothing else in the in, you know there's now a gap between what's happening now and potentially the next reformed cap you know yeah. maybe another rollover one or two year rollover before we get the next process in place and I'd love um, I'd love to see learning from the EIPs been brought out to those groups and maybe some look at how else we can fund grassroots movements, uh, not just for agriculture, but innovations in farming um, that are being thought of at the ground level upwards. If cap reform you know, takes this seriously, then hopefully there is a place for locally led schemes and that they aren't always looking for innovations because innovation can be quite you know uh, initially you can innovate but then sometimes the innovation is to keep it going yes yeah. and to maintain interest yeah. and to build on results and long-term building on results we can't just keep coming up with a new system every five years no and changing the goalposts for farmers that was one of the things that farmers always said to us was that um shifting goalposts yeah if you tell us you want one thing and then suddenly down the line i've worked towards that but you tell me you want something else and now my model has been based on that and I have to go on a complete tangent. That's hard to take as a business person, as a farmer and as a human as well. It's, mm. it's very difficult to see. And I think that's where a lot of the the kind of um, the arguments come from really when you kind of do get, far, you know, farmers do feel that the goalposts are being moved. And then for ordinary citizens, you know, we're hearing about climate change and we're hearing about biodiversity and we know that agriculture has a massive impact on both. And we're kind of going, ah, farmers, you need to fix it. And farmers are going, but I was told to do this and now I'm told. And then you get this argument and nothing's been put forward. But these are, like you said, Matthew, they're solutions, really. These results-based payments and EIPs, aren't they? Yeah, somehow I, I've been thinking about that. What we really need to talk about is uh, about transition and have mm. a vision for where do we want to transition to and not innovate for the sake of innovating yeah. for more productivity but um, I, I feel that it's, there is a bit of this lack of a, of a vision where Ireland wants to transition to mm. you know in, in, in agriculture and there, but these there, there projects is, show there is, there is some vision there I think there's at grassroots level and actually I would have to say that uh, Department of Ag the people who've promoted the EIPs with great foresight and they have provided a lot of time and assistance people to get these off the ground it's not easy for a department to do something like this it's almost you know, radical it is mm -hmm. it yeah. is and but i think that shows the willingness of the department to take a step back and see what we need to do mm -hmm. and uh, europe needs to enable them and a government level department needs to be enabled to make sure that these progress and and spread and spread but also that there's an ability to fail safely mm -hmm. yes and um, these are pilots and we can't expect that everything will go right mm. all the time with these uh, we want them to succeed everybody who's involved in working in them wants them to succeed but we can't or we shouldn't put them to one side if they don't work out in their entirety and mm -hmm. um, five years is very short short 
in the grand scheme in of the things. grand scheme of things. And unfortunately, that's the time scale that say research is done in, mm-hmm. it's funded in, and then we don't always get that long term look at after five years how things could move forward and be changing for the better because we've stopped monitoring at that stage, we've stopped assessing, mm-hmm. we stopped paying at that stage. So I would love to see that um, these are the basis for more innovation moving forward. We just get to let these continue, to let these go on, yeah, to CAP find could fund that. Like CAP is trying to yeah. be greener, and all the studies and any of the say NGOs across Europe, civil society groups that have done so many surveys in the lead up to this CAP, um, and spoke to citizens on the ground, and most of them said, like, look, I want you know biodiversity, I want climate change tackled and they want good food that was that was what they wanted and then from that came this idea of public money for public goods Mm. these EIPs the resource-based payment from here these are showing public goods and you're monitoring them and you can actually quantify them and put them on paper absolutely so cap should inherently if this is what people want on the ground that's what it should do and I think that's why it always comes back to food is political like Mm. as an eater we have to realise that if we want better food and a better environment, we have to be political about mm-hmm. it. And we've got to put that pressure on a local level. You know, as you said, that there's a few people in the department who've had the foresight to go against the grain and support these EIPs. But if more people put more pressure mm-hmm. on our national government, mm-hmm. this could be the way forward instead of them being so... Listen, we're coming up to elections. Elections When anybody so comes to your doorstep, just have a word with them about the fact that food security is important but so is the ability to you know agriculture is such a huge part of our lives Mm -hmm. in Ireland it doesn't matter whether you've come from a city or country background you need food or you produce food or your family are involved in producing food in the past etc we're not that far away or far removed from our agricultural systems they support communities students that come in here most of them are from farming backgrounds we need them in our area to to keep the northwest alive to keep the west alive and uh, the fact that politicians are coming to our doorstep we need to have environment and sports for agriculture and sports for food production and livelihoods of farmers at the forefront of what we're talking about Mm -hmm. as well as you know pictures and lighting and everything else that goes with living in a, in a community in a rural area in a rural area but that's the backbone of it like we have to be food is political and mm-hmm. agriculture is a part of that like we i love wendell berry's very short quote and um, to eat is an agricultural act you know mm-hmm. that like you said whether you are in the city or a town or whether you're on a farm and not on a farm you eat three times a day so agriculture at is least. Yeah, at <laughs> least yeah so there's a lot more but it plays such a vital role and mm. we're not asking these questions on the door we're not and we're not engaging with like what's the point of this podcast to kind of get people to engage with the research that's out there and the mm. grassroots movements on the ground you know that people can yeah. say oh actually there is working examples of a biodiverse climate friendly agriculture so now, why can't we get this across the whole board well it's harder for people who are making food choices to see the background of where food has come from. Mm-hmm. So as we're one small cog in what we're doing in developing the results-based approach. And that is an audit that can be done at the farm level. What needs then to happen within the, the value chain is that 
this is identified that the produce coming from this type of land is sustaining hemp harrier or freshwater fern mussel or biodiversity in its entirety or mashtoo, whatever you've decided can be the goal or the target of that area. And that, that can then go down into the food choices of people mm-hmm. and potentially be associated with some other form of market reward for the farmers. Because like I said, if you're farming mashtoo land, it's hard to farm it, you're not producing that many cows. My goodness, they're feeding on various species rich grassland. They're producing a biodiversity product, clean air, good quality of water, soils that are in good condition, sequestering carbon. They're doing all of that. That has to be transmitted and translated into something that retailers understand and that the consumer understands as well. We're still missing that link, mm-hmm. I think. And that link is harder to get in place than probably you think it is. Mm-hmm. Because I know there have been attempts say in the barn uh, you know there's a lot of good uh, food being produced in the barn trying to get added value onto that trying to market themselves we need maybe more cooperative approach to doing that to looking at that and but those are those are systems that require fundamental change Um, and behavior change and and structural change and and cultural change so not always easy integrate into immediately. That's it for now folks. Thanks a million for listening. To those of you who produce food, why not join the Fair Food Movement? Get involved, get in touch, join us. And if you're into Fair Food, then become a supporting member or check out our Patreon page to help us create more content like this. Until next time, eat well, choose fair.